Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. The world we live in is changing at a fast pace, and what we teach and how we teach is also evolving rapidly. What do our tech futures look like, and how can we embrace developments to ensure positive teaching and learning experience with improved outcomes? How can our education systems be reshaped to foster learner-first approaches while also keeping up-to-date with the growing demands of the 21st century? In this episode, we speak with Dr. John Maverick from Education Futures and look at the recommendations he provides. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your research? Yeah. I'm an education futurist. I do research, some writing. I provide some technical assistance to schools, universities, government ministries, international organizations around the world on innovation and new futures in education. And I'm also the editor of the journal On the Horizon. Cool. Well, obviously, things have really changed a lot with education the last year because of COVID and doing things online and doing online courses and such. I'm wondering, do you think that this will help democratize education and learning? Well, I think that's an interesting question. And I think it's one that that really seems hopeful that we can engineer a break from the status quo where everything is structured from the top down and focused on the imposition of power. But democratized learning happens when members of a learning community are really empowered to teach each other. We're getting away from that top-down stuff to peer-to-peer or just doing stuff together. Or at least provides mechanisms where it can happen if members desire. Democratic education implies students have an active say in the choices regarding the learning, including how their schools are run, how and when they learn, and really all other aspects of daily, of daily life or everyday life. Students are afforded uh, liberties to pursue educational opportunities and approaches for learning that are appropriate for them, as long as their decisions do not infringe on the liberties of others to do the same. And I'm not really seeing much evidence of the COVID-19 crisis is promoting democratization, but I see a few patterns emerge that reveal some ugly truths, I think. I think that the first one is, is just really obvious is that nobody knows what to do, really. Despite our best planning and thinking, a year into this, leaders are still debating whether to keep schools open or closed, whether we want to go online or get creative with school scheduling and so on. Another reality is that that's really emerged is that school is daycare. It allows parents to work and uh, keeps kids off the street. Then I suppose the third point on that would be that online learning has been mostly disappointing for folks. There are many learning management systems, but there's a, an author, Justin Reich, and he wrote a book, uh, Failure to Disrupt, just before this crisis, a couple of years before the crisis. And he really pointed out that they pretty much all do the same thing virtually the same way. Instead of having different features out there, they all converge to the same set of uh, features and tasks and roles. And so this entire ecology of systems doesn't behave like an ecology. Rather, they kind of rubber stamp out uh, teaching and learning frameworks. And there just isn't any applied creativity out there to do things differently. And saying, like, let's democratize doesn't fix anything in itself. It doesn't give a clear guidance on what to do. It doesn't solve the daycare problem. And there isn't any software out there to support it yet. So that said, I really think that the crisis serves as a wake-up call to folks. I really believe that there's a tremendous opportunity that should be seized upon here. Yeah, I'm wondering what this means to university campuses and physical campuses for schools since everything's moving online. Because as, as university campuses move online, increasingly online, I see it as a stopgap measure rather than a, a full fix for this. I think there's been a lot of talk about this really signaling the end of the formal university campus, as it were. Kind of the idea that the move to online is inevitable and it's just how the things are going to be. And I suppose that, say, hey, really, is this really the end of the university campus? And 
in a sense, no, I really hope so. And I hope not at the same time. I think the bottom line of this is that, that traditional higher education is grossly unsustainable. And I think that this crisis is just really making things uh, worse. This morning, I read from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center that undergraduate spring enrollments in 2021 are down 4.5% in the United States over the previous year. And this especially impacts underrepresented students. Community colleges are down 9.5%. That's a huge drop in one year. It's a huge drop, yeah. And it's not and it's not really that because things are moving online. It's just people are moving away from higher education at the moment. And universities have to be responsive. They simply can't put their heads in the sand and wait for the crisis to end. There's just so much work that needs to be done. When you're talking about crises, what, what, what particularly do you mean? Are you talking about the cost of education? Uh, yeah, I think cost of education is a big piece of it. William Balmol wrote over half a century ago that about cost disease and labor sectors that do not experience gains in productivity because they're inherently human-centered. They're not technology-centered, not getting the same gains you get out of technology-based work. And so his, fo- his work was focused on the performing arts, but the same principles, I think, could be applied to education. We simply cannot get the same gains in productivity over time from human systems as we get from machine systems. or technology-dependent systems like automotive production or information processing. So as a result, costs increase while productivity lags behind in a world that's outpacing them. And it's difficult to be slow and expensive when you're tasked for graduating the world's foremost thinkers and the next generation of leaders. So despite COVID, we'd still be moving away and having these same issues, you think? Yeah, I I really think so. I think that COVID is put a wrench into things. I think it's redirecting things. But some of these declines in enrollment may be temporary, but we really need to look at the numbers. But we can't sit back. We have to take action on this. Yeah. Does this mean that universities are going to have to be more competitive to bring people in? How can universities respond to this? If they're losing all these students, what can they do to bring them back? I like the open university concept a lot, as well as other initiatives that try to open access to higher education. But opening the access is as much as it is as bringing students in. The MOOC movement that that was big a few years ago and kind of fizzled is starting to see a resurgence now. And some places are simply trying to make a quick buck with online offerings. But others, like say the open university, I think they're more student centered. And to do online education right, at least the way that universities think is the right way, it's still a very human-centered experience. Courses are expensive to develop. Server racks have replaced buildings. Somebody needs to provide human oversight of learning, in addition to all the software support, the management of all this. And good students demand personal attention. It's all brutally expensive and inefficient. Yeah, but I, I think there's also hope. And I think that the reality is that we've really allowed ourselves to be fooled into thinking that students learn from the top down in university lectures, from the memorization of facts. And for most people in most fields, that really doesn't work. And I think that real learning happens from sense making. And this happens within the contextualized application of what we know to do something new. And it also happens when we communicate and collaborate with others. So in this sense, we could talk about universities under pressure, COVID shutting things down, but university quads, student unions, neighborhood bars have tremendous value in this. That's part of their ecology where where real learning probably really happens. And so much of the sense-making and and, uh, learning happens outside of formal instruction. And this is something that we need to look into as we think about how we can innovate within higher education, whether we do things within virtual universities or go back to campus. Well, are, are universities having to compete now for students? Is this increasing competition? 
Yeah, I think that it's increasing competition and universities will need to become more competitive. But I think that there's also, uh, very historically so, been very little motivation for doing so. They're competing against each other and not new entrants in the market. And in those rare cases where something new enters, you know, they fight heck to discredit them. And this might explain the slow crawl towards quality online courses. There just isn't that sort of motivation to do anything truly different. There's obviously room uh, for that, and there's a real need for disruption, but it's an uphill battle. I think also relating back to your earlier question, I'm inspired by smaller and boutique-like schools. There's the Chaos Pilots Design and Business School in Aarhus in Denmark. There's also the Nomads Business School in Amsterdam. Now, both of these things have started outside the system. Chaos Pilots eventually decided that they wanted to integrate into a credentialed higher education option approved by the government. But the Nomad School opted to stay out, and they figured that having a Nomad's tattoo has about as much value as a regular diploma. <laughs> and it wow. makes sense. It's probably true. But I, th- I think that in, in this space, you know, for new entrants and real innovation, though, there are some serious credentialing questions in addition to public acceptance and regulatory approvals of these sort of these new modes and approaches. So we really have a lot of work to do in this regard to open the space further. Well, my experience has been with conferences this year that everything going online with conferences. And for example, I attended a conference that had over 7,000 attendees when they normally would have had maybe two or 3,000 at most. So there is that certain exposure that more people have access to it. But it is like what you're saying that the real types of things happen outside of that conference itself when you're having coffee with somebody, when you're having lunch. So those seem to be in education, those learning experiences that we have. I'm curious, what schools have you seen do, doing this well in responding to COVID and ad- adapting to online, but still trying to maintain a culture? I really don't know yet. I think we have to see who's really been leading that. I, I, I think that at the end of this, we're going to come together and be able to reflect back and see who had really great experiences. I think there have been some some more open conferences. I'm seeing more more workshops and stuff, more opportunities in those areas that, as you said, are, are drawing in more people. But as to what works and what di- what doesn't work and the sort of outputs that we get out of it, I'd be curious to, to see how we reflect on things. I think that people who are traditionally disadvantaged by the system are probably still disadvantaged, worried about academic output, where that's going, and especially academic output by women who are under greater pressure than anybody else during this crisis. Well, going forward and after COVID, looking back, going back to campuses, how do you think things will change? Do we need schools the same way that we have in the past? It's a good question. And since none of us have really been to the future yet, we really don't know. But I think we can start getting an idea of what the answer might be if we get down to the basics and really start asking, so what are we educating for? Why do we do it? And for whom do our education services or systems serve? And if we're to ask these questions around purpose to somebody, and this really expands to or extends to all levels of education, that person's likely respond in a way that that they were told in school what it was about. Or we're taught to respond to the question of, so what do we what is education for? Such as building good citizens. A couple of years ago, I really wanted to get some insight into what people really thought about what we've been taught to believe versus what they really feel in their hearts. What is the, the purpose of education? So I, I conducted a small survey exercise and reached out to my LinkedIn contacts and others in my network. So it's horrible methodology. Is it, it has no 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 real scientific validity on that. Everything was done you know, at an arm's reach, but I was really 
surprised to see a real great diversity in geography and also the backgrounds of people that provided responses. And they're really candid. Some of them were like really thoughtful. And my big question to them was, so does the future need schools? And yes or no. And, and that was it. It was just one week required question. And then there are uh, two more questions, which is why or why not, which is optional. And the other one just asked, so what's your occupation or what's your background? And I was really astonished to find that 98% of my 164 respondents had something more to say on this than just yes or no. And they, they wrote back volumes and they were just really feeding back, in other words, what schools are for, whether if they needed them or not. And so these in- included areas around socialization, how are we going to learn to socialize with each other unless if we have these formal spaces or providing a space just for learning, having structures for learning that that people need structures to learn, providing opportunities to learn together so that we can transfer knowledge, providing foundations they otherwise wouldn't get at home because it's, it's good to get out of the house to learn. And, uh, and some people even talked about social economic liberation. And of course, I think that I think it's important to point out that quite a few respondents believe that schools are really obsolete or oppressive, right? And primary and secondary level instructors represented a significant proportion of this group. And that, that really surprised me that the teachers themselves were the, were the ones that, at least in this non-scientific study, they're the ones to say that something really needed to change. And another interesting thing was that you'd think that having this sort of open question thing, like, do we need schools or not? It invite a lot of sarcasm or sarcastic re- responses or anything. But only five out of 164 came back with any sort of <laughs> level of sarcasm. And I believe that 43% of them called for a need to change or evolve learning, or and some even offered some pathways forward. So what sort of things do they offer? I'm just really curious about some of the feedback that you got. Quite a few people talk about democratic education, informal, non-formal approaches were, were highlighted. We had a few connecting with nature better, doing more to connect with nature and more uh, social experiences within nature. Yeah, those were some of them. Could you tell me about your book, Emerging Education Futures? Right. So Emerging Education Futures is constructed as a snapshot of where we are, where our thinkings were on, on the future of education. But I wanted to connect as much on the practitioner side as well as people who are really doing some thinking on this. And it was really just an, an open call for it. So that little study thing or informal study that I just uh, talked about a bit, we've got a write-up in there. And you get the book at your, a favorite bookstore if you order it or an Amazon. But it's also a free download, educationfutures.com. Or if you can't find it, you just email me at john at educationfutures.com. I'm happy to send you a copy. It's just a, it's just a nice way to present a snapshot of where we were and our thinking. Well, what is some of the research that that stuck out to you in, in this collection? To be honest, I, I think that really stuck out to me was the sense that we're not thinking too creatively about the future quite yet, that we're talking about, about educational contexts that are more or less static, that we're pretty much just rearranging things around. We're looking at using technologies in ways, but re- not really making huge changes And I think that for me, the one thing I got out of the book process is that it just really highlighted how hard it is for us to imagine education futures that are any different. Well, talking so much about the future, how are students having to adapt and educators as well? What skills uh, do you think that they need? 
Well, I think that one of the key challenges for education is that the world is changing so quickly that schools and universities are just simply having a hard time keeping up. You know, in essence, we're really entering an era where graduates are already obsolete by the time that they graduate in so many fields. And there's been so much talk about the soft skills or the 21st century skills. And I strongly agree. That's where we need to prioritize our focus in education. If you don't have the hard knowledge necessary to lend you a job in, in the rapidly evolving landscape of your field, maybe at least you've got the soft skills to survive a job interview. And these can include some very basic things like being a nice person and also more complicated things like entrepreneurship, intercultural competence, computational thinking. And I think that this is more than just learning how to behave and learning how to think, but also creating a continuous practice of learning, like learning how to learn. And these are really hard to teach in formal education and also hard to measure. Experiential, non-formal, informal approaches, sometimes we learn serendipitously, can be very meaningful, but we just haven't placed the same value on them over formal instruction. So I really think that this is something that needs to change. And I really view it as the responsibility of educational administrators to just enable these opportunities. It's a student's responsibility, however, to maximize them and develop these skills and make use of them in their lives. Yeah, we keep talking about the future. I'm curious, I'd also like to know what key aspects of schooling and education do you think need to change? You know, I think that's a really loaded question. I think we could spend forever discussing and debating it. But at the end of the day, I really think that it just comes down to power. It's all about power. Are we educating for the benefit of students or are we educating for the benefit of somebody else? So I think that how did we talk about this or alluded to it a little bit earlier, today's students are afforded low agency. And what I mean by that is that agency is being allowed to do what they want to do. And it's simply a wonder that some of them are able to operate with a high level of self-efficacy that's you know believing themselves that they can learn and do the stuff anyways. The future is built around nomadic jobs and roles. It's not static. We don't need any sort of packaged brains anymore. And the, the problem is, we want people who are creative. We want people with individual level talent. We want people who are curious. We want people who dream. We need people who can take on the jobs and roles that software and robots cannot replicate. That's where the jobs are. That's where the future is. And you asked earlier about democratizing education. And I think that if we're to democratize, we really need to attend to students' agency and self-efficacy, right? It's an intersection, high levels of both that I think we're going to really achieve a sort of sense of nirvana, right? And this is going to really require a rethinking of schooling. And I, this gets to my second point here that I touched on a little bit earlier. There's just very little imagination on what teaching and learning could be apart from what we currently practice. Schools made with boxes, uh, you know, they're boxes with kids in classrooms. They're separated by age and desks. They operate from 7.45 a.m. to 2.37 p.m. with the teacher with absolute authority and supposedly knowledge. And these are all holdovers from the industrial era. And so today we really fool ourselves into thinking that we're disrupting the model by replacing desks with round tables or bouncing balls, substituting blackboards for smart boards, replacing university lecture halls with, with Moodle. We're just not changing anything. We're just simply remixing the same old stuff and presenting it in almost the exact same way. And when you consider just how obsolete things really are, we are truly rearranging the deck chairs of the Titanic. And this is a hard mentality to 
to get over. Because school is a school is a school. It, it's just so ingrained in our minds. It's so ingrained in our cultures that we simply cannot imagine anything different. That is funny. You know, I, um, I, I taught for several years or for a decade at, at Vanderbilt. And, you know, there was always a push to use more technology in the class. And there were times where I'm using PowerPoints and things like that. But I always kept coming back to using the chalkboard. Right. Yeah. You Use what works. And if you're using PowerPoint to replace the chalkboard, it's just expensive chalkboard is what it <laughs> turns into. That's what it ends up being. That's how I felt about it. We got to really think about think differently. And this is, it's a problem for all of us. We've got a real problem imagining anything different. School's the future that we imagine in like in science fiction or speculative fiction. I think they're great sources for ideas. We could do amazing things. We could travel through space or time, engineer all sorts of wonderful things. But whenever, when we depict schools in these things, they all look the exact same thing that they do now. Like it's, School, if you're watching Star Trek, looks like a school, right? It's recognizable within a fraction of a second. Even uh, the book Ender's Game, which is a book about schools, the school is really no different than it does today. So maybe some elements are upgraded or switched around, but a school is still recognizably a school. The reality is that the elephant in the room is that we have a crisis of imagination here. We just cannot imagine education futures that are any different. Well, what about pedagogy itself? I'm just curious about the other colleagues that you might be working with through your center, that other aspects of pedagogy they might be exploring and how that might be adapting to the future as well. For for the people I work with in my network, I think that the most interesting work, if we talk about pedagogy at all levels, whether you're working with kids or working with adults, it's really been looking at democratic schools and, and how they function. And I've really been somewhat obsessed by the Sudbury type schools. Because they still make no sense to me because they break out of my imagination of what schools are supposed to be just a little bit. They push me enough. I'm like, how could that possibly happen? And these are schools that embrace the principle of democratic behavior at their core. And they provide each student an equal voice and an equal vote among staff members and other stakeholders as to what they learn, how their schools are run. Students spend time together uh, without age or grade separation. And they decide how to spend their time at the school. So let's talk about agency. This is an approach for high agency, right? But there are also checks and balances in there. So like central to the school's operation are school meetings. And in those uh, students and staff members make key decisions in a process that's focused on participatory democracy. Everybody's got an equal vote. So in these schools, students are afforded tremendous uh, freedoms together with their personal and really a collective responsibility to make the best decisions possible. Actually, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'd like it if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your journal, the work that you do on your journal. Yeah. So On the Horizon, it's an inter- international journal. It's been in existence for nearly 30 years, and it it explores the issues that drive new futures for learning and possibilities for human development. So it's not uh, just a journal for futurists, but it's really a journal for anybody who's interested in the future of education or innovation and and human development. And so looking at, at foresight, looking into the, the roles of technology that it has, we're looking at interplay with uh, societies as well, kind of like the social, economic, environmental, and cultural needs, as well as the uh, policies and practices that need to take place. And uh, as we need to get creative about uh, education or think creatively, also look into non-formal and informal type of approaches as well. Who's your readership? Are these are mostly professors that are also teaching that are involved in, in education? 
I am so happy you asked that. It is largely an academic readership, but really pushing to to make this more accessible to practitioners. That's one of the things I, I like about, about working with Emerald on this stuff. Going for the structured abstract, I think it allows for more practical applications. But there are practitioner experiences out there that I hope that we can capture a whole lot more as, as we move forward with this journal. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for, for talking to me today. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find a transcript of this show as well as more information about John Maverick in the show notes on our website. I'd like to thank Sana Zahur for her help with the show and Alex Jungius of This Is Distorted. 